So, as I mentioned, we'll be picking up our study here and actually coming to the end of our study here in Matthew 28. Uh, We'll pick up in verse 1 this morning just by way of review a little bit, but then we'll focus in more specifically on verses 16 through 20, wherein we find what is commonly known as the Great Commission. Many of you probably familiar with that terminology. It's not biblical in the sense that Jesus said, hey, this is the Great Commission, but it's what we look at it as. It's that point when Jesus commissions his disciples and says, in light of what I've done, in light of the authority that I have, here's what you now are supposed to go and do. And so really, this is a critical passage for our understanding of the church, for us as the church, how we are to live out our lives, what it is that we are to be about. Now, we began our journey through Matthew on May 24th of 2020. So it's been almost a year that we've been making our way through this gospel, uh, and we've made pretty good time through this book. At the same time, though, if you think back to May of last year, it's pretty amazing all that we've been through, all that we've encountered, all the things that have happened, uh, no doubt, in your life through the last uh, almost year. Think back to May, and, and uh, we've had a lot of fun as we've made our way through this gospel. Uh, and, and so just by way of a little bit of refresher, Matthew, of course, being the first book in the New Testament, serves as really a bridge between 400 years of silence, the end of the Old Testament, and the words of the prophets, to the account then of Jesus, of his life, of his ministry on this earth, and the bringing of a new covenant. And specifically, it's certainly by design, not by accident, that Matthew is the first book. And Matthew is specifically writing to primarily a Jewish audience as he was seeking to establish the authority of Jesus as the sovereign king over all. That's really Matthew's aim, that he wants his readers to understand. So Matthew has been less concerned with including every single event and a lot of of detail of, of various events, and more so with what he sees as the main events to clearly demonstrate that Jesus has authority over all things. And we'll see that language in these final verses here this morning. At the very end of my first message in Matthew, back on May 24th, I made the statement that Jesus is, in fact, king. Jesus is king. Scripture would testify to this. Uh, Those who are recorded in Scripture testified to this. He is king over all of the earth. But I ask the question, is he the king of your life and of your heart? And I'll ask the very same question this morning, but I don't want you to be quick to respond to me. I would just simply ask, is Jesus the king of your life and of your heart? Now, the reason I would not want you to respond quickly to that is is that for many of you, no doubt your initial response is probably a confident yes. And in many respects, that's a good thing, that that we would have the sense that, yes, Jesus, Jesus, Jesus is king of my life. That There's a confidence on your part that you love Jesus, that you've given your life to him. But there's more to consider here. There's always more to consider when it comes to our relationship with Jesus Christ. If Jesus is a sovereign king, then that means that he is all-powerful, that he has all authority. So then, for us to be under such rule means that there is complete surrender and obedience to that authority. That's what we must consider Have we willingly brought our lives under His rule? Are we truly obedient to the things that He desires of us? We need to evaluate that. Now before we go any further, let me pause and say this. As it pertains specifically to the Great Commission, many a sermon has been taught on the Great Commission. 
Now, many people probably expect when you come to a passage like this that, that there is going to be emphasis on the importance of Christians going out into the world and sharing their faith. And that would certainly be true even for this morning. That we would be about evangelism. Now, what we often then hear and what we often add on to this is, is a, a bit of pressure, perhaps, with this idea that there is sort of unfinished work to be done, that there is this ticking clock, if you will, that, that if you're not doing your part, then someone's going to perish. And while I can't stand here this morning and say that's entirely untrue, I know that oftentimes messages surrounding the Great Commission can cause us to feel a little guilty, can cause us even to feel condemned. This idea that, it, that we better leave here today and, and we better go and get somebody saved if we're going to truly do our part. And, and I know for me, I've often felt this way. This, this sort of guilt, this condemnation, this seeking in my own strength to convert others to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the fact is, if that's what we do, if that's how we feel, that's a terrible place to be. And that's a terrible way for us to operate in terms of trying to fulfill what it is that God has called us to do. How effective is it to tell others of the greatest news in all of history from a place of guilt and condemnation? Or to seek to do a life-transforming work that is truly a work of the Holy Spirit to do so in the strength of our own flesh? God forbid. Rather, what I would hope to accomplish here this morning in the limited time that we have is to, a, is to appeal a bit more to the basis of what God has done and then from there to understand what it is that He desires of us because of what He has done. And, and then to understand what is it that He wants us to do and, and how is it that we are supposed to do it and to then consider the incredible encouragement that comes from knowing that Jesus Himself said, I'm with you as you do it as we step out in obedience. What I would want us to consider this morning even further, which I find captured well in the words of pastor and author Christopher Wright, is for us to see that when it comes to the Great Commission, there is in fact mission beyond evangelism. It's more than simply the sharing of the gospel. And so let's jump in and review here, beginning in verse 1. If you'd like to read along with me here, I'll go through several verses as we considered these last week. We read, now after the Sabbath, as the first day of the week began to dawn, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone from the door and sat on it. His countenance was like lightning, and his clothing as white as snow. And the guards shook for fear of him and became like dead men. But the angel answered and said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus, who was crucified. He is not here, for he is risen, as he said. Come, see the place where the Lord lay, and go quickly and tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead, and indeed he is going before you into Galilee. There you will see him. Behold, I have told you. And so they went out quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to bring his disciples' word. And as they went to tell his disciples, behold, Jesus met them, saying, Rejoice. So they came and held him by the feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brethren to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. Let's pause here and consider a few things this morning. First, the events of these last several days as captured by Matthew were significant to say the least. From a triumphal entry into Jerusalem to a confrontation with religious leaders, a last supper, and then an arrest, 
a trial and crucifixion, a supposed Savior now dead upon a cross. Yet here they come to an empty tomb and now they see a risen Lord. Such events have become almost common in our understanding. It's not that when we read them, we don't delight in them, but there is some familiarity to everything that was happening here. And, and, and certainly to Christians, though it's familiar, we know it's foundational, but even to many who don't even believe in Jesus as their Lord and Savior, this has become even a familiar story that is told. But here, in this moment, as, I, as I've shared before, even last week, everything was changing. The events that were transpiring in this moment were causing everything to become different. The world as they knew it was changing. Our world as we know it changed in this moment. What was happening here, what was now becoming clear to them, was that Jesus is alive. What this means then is that the Savior, the Messiah, is alive. This means then that the things that He said were true. Now they may have misunderstood some of those things, but they were true nonetheless. This means that He's not done. This means that, that His plans were not over. It means that sin has been addressed. It means that death has been defeated. It means that relationship with God has been restored. The veil in the temple torn. It means that there's a promise of eternal life and so much more. You see, as, as we look at this event, even though sometimes we can become so familiar with the narrative, we must Remember, we must consider that in these moments, as these women were encountering Jesus, everything about life was changing. And, and so then, I can only imagine in their minds, because even in my mind as well, you begin then to ask the question of, well, why? Why were all these things happening? Why such a demonstration of grace? And, and even more so then, what now? What do we do now in light of how everything is changing? What, what of our lives? If everything is different now, what about our lives? Are, are our lives to be different? You know, sometimes there's, there's certain things in life and it, and it changes your life. It can be good, it can be bad. But you know that after this moment, no longer can things be the same. Truly, this was one of those times. And so as they begin to consider, how now will things look different? How now will my life be different? They were about to find out. Now we have somewhat of a departure here from the main point of the text that Matthew includes for us. In verse 11 through 15 we read, Now while they were going, that is, the, these are the women who were going to tell the others as they were instructed, behold, some of the guard came into the city and reported to the chief priests all the things that had happened. And when they had assembled with the elders and consulted together, they gave a large sum of money to the soldiers, saying, Tell them his disciples came at night and stole him away while we slept. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will appease him and make you secure. So they took the money and did as they were instructed. And this saying is commonly reported among the Jews until this day. You see, we have a little bit of insight here. No doubt Matthew wanted his Jewish audience to understand this, which was, do not believe what they are saying. Matthew wants to make sure it's understood that hey, we did not go and steal Jesus' body away and make all of this up. He was effectively telling his audience, don't believe what you're hearing. Now, 
Matthew does not mention a lot of the things that are happening during this time. You see, Matthew's gospel very quickly transitions from the resurrection to the commissioning of the apostles, and then it ends. But there was a lot more that was happening during this time that really supports the, the very reason why I believe Matthew was including this in his gospel. In fact, the book of Acts, which is penned by Luke, tells us in chapter 1, verse 3, it says, To whom he, that's Jesus, also presented himself alive after his suffering by many infallible proofs, being seen by them during forty days, and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. You see, Luke tells us that there was actually a pretty uh, good amount of time between the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus Christ. And that in that time, He a- appeared to, to many people. He was seen over the course of 40 days. Paul writes similarly in 1 Corinthians in chapter 15, verse 6. He says, after that, He was seen by over 500 brethren at once. Now this is in addition, in the verses prior, He mentions certain people by name who Jesus appeared to. But he says of the 500, of whom the greater part remain to the present. He says, these people are still alive. They are eyewitnesses to the fact that Jesus is alive. This was no great ruse. This was a fact. That there were witnesses that could speak to having seen the risen Lord Jesus Christ. Why is that important? Because if they've seen Him, if many people, hundreds of people have said He's alive, then that means everything has changed. That means our lives are different. And and, and now many of you here this morning may speak to the way in which Jesus in saving you has radically transformed your life. Praise God for that. But the fact that He's alive means that there is something else in your life that should happen. There is a way in which we should live today because Jesus is alive. And so then, the women continue on their mission to tell the disciples, and many other things happen over the course of 40 days. We don't know for sure uh, all of those details, and furthermore, as we pick up here with Matthew, we find that this is more on the latter end or the tail end of uh, this time. As in verse 16, we read then, the 11 disciples went away into Galilee to the mountain which Jesus had appointed for them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. There's 11 disciples at this point. Of course, we know that Judas had sadly taken his own life. A 12th disciple has not yet been chosen, but will. And based on the other gospel accounts, the disciples we know would have already seen Jesus before this time. But the way that Matthew reads, it almost seems as if this is the first that they're seeing him, but it's not. Again, Matthew does not account for every day and every event. Yet here, even though they've seen Jesus now before this time, when they see Him, they are still moved to worship Him, as we too will be. Christian, when you see Jesus, Christian, unchristian alike, when, when you see Jesus, you will worship Him. That is clear. Scripture tells us as much. And, and, and then for those that it says doubted, uh, for them it was likely less of sort of a defiant, I don't believe that this is happening, but rather I can't believe it. Still this, this sense of awe, this I don't want to get my hopes up. I, 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 can't, I can't believe that he's, that he's really alive and he's working and he's moving. It was a sense of almost disbelief, not so much doubt. Because again, once again, because if he isn't, If he isn't alive, then 
then, then we're hopeless. Then we're, we're still dead in our sin. Then our lives haven't changed. It's, it's just gotten worse. But if he's truly alive, if this is him, then everything is different. And so here Jesus has instructed them to go to Galilee to gather on a mountain. We don't know exactly what mountain it is, but the Galilee region. This is interesting because this is where ministry had begun. In many respects, this is where it all started, where Jesus had first called some of his disciples. And when he called them, what is it that he said he would make them? Fishers of men. And now he's about to give them the great commission to tell them, you're going to go out in my name. You're going to go and you're going to share the gospel. What, what I've told you is going to happen. And so you see, this is almost as if it's bookends on Jesus' ministry here. Furthermore, Jesus had taught on a mountain in the Galilee region before. The Sermon on the Mount where he taught with great authority. And here again, he is going to come with great authority, giving instruction to his disciples. And in many respects, this is some of his final instruction to them. The marching orders, as it were, as he gives them the great commission reading in verse 18 and following, and Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Amen. You see, this, this is it. This is, this is one of the more profound and important passages in Scripture as this is the instruction given first to the apostles that sets them out to turn the world upside down. It was from this point forward, uh, there would be a little more time as they would go and they would wait in Jerusalem for the Holy Spirit to come upon them, to empower them, and they would begin to be faithful in ministry, even giving their lives for it. But they would turn the world upside down as they would bring the truth of the gospel to the ends of the earth. And this is the instruction that is still for us today. Yes, it was given first to them, but we are to heed it as well. Now, there are four primary elements that we see here in the Great Commission that I want us to consider with the remaining time that we have left this morning as we reflect on our own commitment and our own involvement in the work of the Great Commission. The first thing this morning, if you're taking notes, write one and all authority. This is the first thing we need to consider here in terms of what Jesus has said. All authority has been given to Jesus. In Daniel, in chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, Daniel 7, 13 and 14, it says, I was watching in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. He came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. Then to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom the one which shall not be destroyed. You see, throughout the Old Testament, even from the very beginning there in the garden after the fall of man, it was clear that the Son of Man had authority. Whether there in the garden and in the prophecy that while the serpent would bruise the heel of the sun, that the sun would crush the head of the serpent, that Satan would be defeated. Daniel in his prophecies, seeing here that the Son of Man has great authority. And Jesus here declares that he has absolute authority. Jesus saying himself, so then we must consider, we must ask, what does that mean for us? 
What you must recognize here this morning, what each of us must recognize is that we are either submitting to that authority or we are rebelling against it. There is no in-between. You cannot be safely in the middle of just sort of, oh, I'm neutral on this. That, can't, that does not work. You are either actively submitting to the authority of Jesus Christ, bringing your life into obedience to His Word, or you are rebelling against it. Philippians in chapter 2, verses 9-11 through 11 says, Therefore, God also has highly exalted Him and given Him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Friends, what you think about Jesus, whether He is God or He's not, does not change the fact that He is. What you think about Him does not change who He is. What you think about Jesus certainly has bearing on your individual salvation. But for those that think Him not to be God, for those that dismiss Him as no more than a great man or a great teacher, it does not rob Him of His divinity. It does not rob Him of His authority. It does not rob Him of His place seated on the throne. There will come a time, Scripture is clear, and it hasn't been wrong yet, where all of creation, all men, those in heaven, those on earth, those under the earth, all will bow the knee. All with one tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. So then, if Jesus has all authority, then what He says matters. What He expects of us matters. And so, Christian, as we continue, it is important to understand that the Great Commission is not a choice. There is no exemption from this. There is no, oh, I'm, I'm not a gifted evangelist. I, I don't, this is just really isn't for me. There is not a scenario where you are not expected to submit to the authority of Jesus Christ in this area. But here's the thing I would share with you this morning. I'm not expecting you to be obedient out of compulsion. As I mentioned earlier, there's no place for us to, to function in obedience with, with guilt and condemnation. Rather, I am challenging us, I am asking us to get to a place where it's truly what our heart desires. And so you see, it's interesting, in both Matthew and Luke, and Matthew very much in the context of the Great Commission, in Luke following that, and uh, as it pertains to his ascension, we see something very important. Here in Matthew, just before Jesus speaks in verse 17, if you have your Bibles, look at it there. We read something. It says they worshipped him. In Luke, in 24, verse 52, it says very similarly, and they worshipped him. Even in, in the Gospel of John, in chapter 20, I believe it's in verse 28, where, where uh, it would have been a, around the first time that they were seeing him, Thomas comes in. It's, it's the doubting Thomas scenario. And as Jesus there very mercifully deals with Thomas and, and, and he tells him to, to consider him and, and to look at the, his hands and his side, what does Thomas declare? He cries out, oh Lord, my God. He begins to worship him. As we consider even in our own times, uh, even in our services where we have praise and worship, you know, the, the praise is, is, it happens in song oftentimes. 
as we lift our praises up to him, it's a way for us to say thank you, but it, but it really becomes worship. It's not, listen, it's, we can call it praise and worship time, but it is not worship if you are not taking those words, making them their, your own, saying, Lord, this is my praise to you. This is me giving thanks to you. And, and in an act of worship, it's like what we see in Romans 12, 1 and 2, where you take your body, a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God, and you put it on that altar. You say, Lord, here's my life. I give it to you. That's what worship is about. We can so easily in these passages just read verse 17. Oh, they worshiped him. Oh, praise the Lord. They lifted a hand and they said something nice. No, this is them saying, my life is yours. It's not my own. You see, so often we can, we, we can find ourselves taking Jesus off of the throne of our hearts and putting, putting us right back there. Use whatever analogy you want to. Sometimes it's trying to sneak over into the driver's seat, right? And pretend as if your life is your own. We are so prideful and arrogant in that regard that we think on any given day, we just get to do whatever we want to do. That may seem like what you're doing. You may seem to have that authority, but the bottom line is you don't. Jesus has all authority. He has declared it. So the question is, are we seeking him in such a way where we can be confident, I'm abiding in you? I'm doing what you have called me to do today. Even moment by moment, being sensitive to the leading of his Holy Spirit such that you can with confidence say, yes, I'm living for Christ. My life is not my own, it's his. Why? Because he bought it with his own life. And so I've willingly given mine over. That's what worship is. And so you see, we will never be passionately committed to the work of the Great Commission if we are not surrendered first to his authority. If we don't, with all of our hearts, with every bit of who we are, say, yes, you are God. You have all authority. My life is not my own. It belongs to you. And then, and only then, can we truly begin to give ourselves to the work that he's called us to. Because this work cannot be accomplished through a simple intellectual understanding. It must be wrought through a surrendered heart that understands that Jesus is Lord of your life. Alan Redpath, great preacher once said this he said there are two kinds of people in the world he said there are missionaries and then there's the mission field which one are you he said only one of those groups truly recognizes the authority that is the lordship of jesus christ you're either a missionary actively on mission whatever that may look like for you whatever it is the lord has called you to or you're the mission field the one whom others are seeking to see transformed by the truth of the gospel. So the first thing this morning is all authority. The second is go therefore. Now whenever we see the word therefore, we need to ask what it's therefore, right? And so this is where Jesus is saying, essentially, because I'm in charge, you need to go, right? He's saying all authority, I have it all, so go. This is rooted in the authority of Jesus Christ. Because all authority has been given to him, we go. Now you may say, well, where do we go? Everywhere. Go all the places, okay? Go wherever it is that he is directing you. And perhaps it would be better for us to say, wherever you go, wherever you go, what are you doing? Making disciples. Now we'll get to that here next. Because you see, making disciples tells us that this is more than just sharing the gospel. A disciple is, is far more than someone who has simply heard the gospel, right? They're believing it. They're trusting it. They're following it. They're making themselves a student of Jesus Christ and his word. But 
in order for that to happen, they do have to hear it. They have to hear the gospel. That's where it begins. And so, yes, part of going is about sharing the gospel. It is evangelism. Now, in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, as recorded by Luke, in what would seem to be Jesus' final words as he instructs them on the coming of the power of the Holy Spirit upon them, he says, And you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem, in all Judea, in Samaria, and to the end of the earth. Now, it may not be applicable for us to truly take this and say, okay, this is the pattern, but I do think it fits. I think when we look at this, we can consider how this applies in our own day and age. Because for them, Jerusalem was their local city, and Judea was the greater surrounding area, which included Samaria, a place nearby that they didn't really want to go to. And then, of course, the ends of the earth. And so I think in some respects, we can look to this same pattern in our lives as we consider Columbia and the need for the truth of the gospel in our city. And in the greater area, we would maybe call it the Midlands. Yeah, we're going out to Kershaw and we're going over to Lexington. We're going to all the places where the Lord is giving us influence. Where do you work? Where do you go to school? Where do you have family? Where do you have friends? We're going into those areas obediently and throughout our state and throughout our country. And yes, maybe even abroad. And so sometimes, yes, we're going across the ocean. We have opportunity to take mission trips. We've got one coming up in May. And people hopefully have prayerfully considered their involvement in that. And they're going because the Lord has said, yes, go. This is a great opportunity for you to reach somebody. But you may not need to cross the ocean. Maybe for you here this morning, it's about crossing the threshold of Calvary Kids Ministry. Amen? All right. We get a little more enthusiasm next time. This isn't just the opportunity for a shameless plug, but I'll take the plug nonetheless. That is a mission field. You don't think that's a mission field? How many parents do we have in here who have kids in Calvary Kids right now? Okay, praise the Lord. Do you want your kids to know Jesus? Yeah? Yes, you do. Guys, we got kids who need to hear the truth of the gospel for seeds to be planted in their hearts, for their family, their church family, the body of Christ to, to nurture that. There's probably not many of you in here right now that wouldn't say, oh Lord, what's happening to this world? What's gonna happen? What's gonna, hey, you know what? Let's put more Christians into it. Let's have the next generation that's going to go out into this world love Jesus. How about that? I could care less. Oh, I can't even go. I'm not doing it. Nope. <laughs> Woo. I almost went there. Some of you are like, go, go. What is it? What is it? No, I'm not. It's not in the notes. I'm not going there. <laughs> People need Jesus. That's the answer, okay? The truth of the gospel. But you might say, well, I'm not great at articulating the gospel. I, I'm just not good at, you know, I, I can't with the kids and, and, and then people, just strangers. and uh, Listen, stop it. Stop it. You are equipped to do it. Do you understand that? You know how I know? Because if you're, if you're saved, then that means God chose you to do it. Because there is not a point in Scripture where we see that someone is exempt because they're not gifted in this particular area. We are all called to do it. He has chosen you to do it. And that's an incredible work of God's grace. Yes, you may be thinking, I can't do it. And you're right, you can't. But He has said, I am a sovereign God with all authority who has chosen you, and I'm working in you, and I'm transforming you, and I want to use you for my glory. So would you just let me move and work in your life and do something incredible? It will build your faith. Just remember, there's no exceptions. This is what he has been doing since the very beginning. He didn't just save you because he thought it'd be cool. He didn't save you because you thought, well, oh, this seems like a good person. And we said, they're all terrible. 
So I'm going to redeem them. Why? He saved you with a purpose. And that purpose was not so that you would just have some good life. That purpose was that so you would be a witness for him and bring glory to his name. So that the whole world would know that he is God. Isaiah chapter 43 verse 10 says, You are my witnesses, says the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. And so not only does he say, you're my witnesses and you're going to go forth and you're going to bring glory to me, but in the process of doing that, you're going to know me even more. Your faith is going to be strengthened. And you might say, well, what do I do? And what do I say? Listen, I would say absolutely it is important that we give proper effort to things that we practice, that if you're uncomfortable, you, like Peter tells us, would, would prepare yourself to be ready to give a defense for the hope that is in you. Certainly, if you're going to serve in children's ministry, prepare for it. Get your lesson ready. Be ready to answer questions for the kids. But trust that he's going to move and work. Trust that he's going to equip you and empower you. And we should be able to articulate the gospel. And so if you need to practice it, practice it. But you know, some of the most powerful things that we have to share are simply our testimony what it is that he's done in our lives. It doesn't have to be with great eloquence. It can just be telling somebody what he has done. There's countless examples in Scripture. I'll, sh- I'll mention just a few. The Gospel of John in chapter 4, verses 39 through 42. And many of the Samaritans of that city believed in him. Why? Because of the word of the woman who testified. He told me all that I ever did, she said. So when the Samaritans had come to him, they urged him to stay with them. And he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his own word. Then they said to the woman, Now we believe, not because of what you said, for we ourselves have heard him, and we know that this is indeed the Christ, the Savior of the world. What she had shared in just simply going around to other people and saying, I met Jesus, and he told me everything about myself, caused people to then want to hear and to listen. And they were saved. Or how about in the Gospel of John in chapter 9, verse 25? This is the blind man. He was the blind man who could now see. Jimmy shared about this in the devotional on Friday. And see, the thing is, is the religious leaders, they were, they were hot mad, okay? Because he healed him on the Sabbath. So this guy must be a sinner, must be a terrible guy. And so they go to him and they ask him, what about this guy? Is he a sinner? And the guy's kind of like trying to respond to them. And then they go to his parents and his parents are like, well, we don't want to get in trouble. He's an adult. You talk to him. So they go back to the blind man again. And they say, what's the deal? And the blind man looks at him and he answers and he says, whether he's a sinner or not, I do not know. One thing I know that though I was blind, now I see. In the Pastor Jimmy translation, it was, I don't know about all that. But I was blind, I met Jesus, and now I can see. It was that simple. What do we read in Revelation in chapter 12, verse 11? And this is regarding Satan, the great adversary. It says, and they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb. Jesus has done the work, he's paid the price, and by the word of their testimony, by people saying, this is what he's done for me. And we know that we're called to this because Jesus himself prayed for it. In John 17, verse 20, I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. Because as the word of God is shared, as the testimonies are shared, more people come to faith and more people and more people and more people and more people until such time as Jesus sees fit to come for his church. Third, make disciples. See, this tells us that there is mission beyond evangelism. It is more than just evangelism. Not that evangelism is bad. It starts there. But we must be making disciples. And there is a process. Now that process is not entirely captured here in the words of Jesus. Rather, it's borne out through Scripture. But Jesus does tell us two things. First of all, He says baptism. He says baptize them. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Friends, baptism is a matter of obedience. 
If you are a Christian and you have not been baptized, then you are being disobedient. Baptism, now note this, baptism is not what saves you. It's an outward sign. It's a profession of faith. But if you refuse to be baptized, if you've not been baptized and you're like, eh, whatever, I'm not about that, well, then you might want to evaluate, do I really know Him? Am I really saved? Because why wouldn't you be obedient to what He's called you to do? And so we do baptisms here often, at least a couple of times a year, if not much more than that. And so if that's you, if you need to be baptized, tell us. We'll make it happen. So He says baptism, and then He says teaching them. Teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. Now enter in the Word of God. Now each of you have a role in submitting yourselves to this. To submitting yourselves to the teaching of the Word of God. But then you also have a role in helping to teach others. Through Bible studies, through devotionals, through one-on-one accountability, through being at church on Sundays, through coming to midweeks if you can, pursuing time to be equipped. It's about us coming to an understanding. As he said, teach them all the things that I've commanded you. Well, what did, what did he teach them? It's the things that they wrote. It's the things that they recorded. It's the things that they said. Jesus told us this. It's the, it's the Gospels. It's the letters under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that are rooted in the truth of Scripture. The instruction given to churches as they were established. So yes, it's more than simply sharing the Gospel. It's walking alongside those who surrender their lives to Christ to teach them how to live for Him. And once again, you've got a great opportunity through a variety of different ministries. I've mentioned children's ministry again, not, again, not as a shameless plug, but to say we, we need that. What an incredible mission field right here in our church. But also, discipleship happens oftentimes outside of the formality of the classroom by inviting people into your life. Maybe it's in life groups, but you know, oftentimes it's about recognizing a brother or sister who's in need of some help, who's in need of discipleship, who needs some counsel, who, whatever it is, and and even though you're, you're busy or even though you've got different things going on, you say, well, hey, come and join me. Be a part of this with me. If you have the ability, hey, come along t- with me while I run this errand or I do this job or I w- do whatever it is. But, and, and, and it's an overused phrase within the church today, but it's a good one nonetheless. That we say we do life together. You invite people to be a part of your life. You open up your home. Finally, number four, he is with you. He's with you. There's no greater encouragement than the words of Jesus which say, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Isaiah in chapter 41, verses 8 through 10, it's a promise, yes, given to Israel, but I believe we find strength in it as well. As he says, But you, Israel, are my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, the descendants of Abraham, my friend, you whom I have taken from the ends of the earth and called from its farthest regions and said to you, You are my servant. I have chosen you and have not cast you away. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. Yes, I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. See, God is with you. But it's so easy for us, it seems sometimes, to go about our days and to think we're all alone. To neglect to remember the fact that as a believer, not only was His Spirit with you, drawing you under repentance, but His Holy Spirit is in you sealing you until the day of salvation, but also should you seek it upon you. It's in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. You see, earlier we looked at the second half of that verse, but the first part is absolutely incredible because you see the very same power that raised Jesus from the dead. It's within you, Christian. And not only in you, but upon you, 
And so you can be confident that He is with you, that He is working, that He is empowering you, that He is equipping you. You see, Paul writes in Ephesians in chapter 3, verse 20, Now to Him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that works in us. Saying there is power inside of you, Christian, and He uses that power to do things that are exceedingly abundantly. It means so far beyond what you could even begin to think to ask. Or to think to think. It doesn't even register. You don't even know it. You can't grasp it. But that's what He's doing. That's what He wants to do in you. And so when we think about fulfilling this work, when we think about how potentially terrifying it might be, to know it's not me. I don't need to worry about it. It's Him. I just need to worship Him. I just need to surrender my life to Him. And He will do it. Friends, the Great Commission, it isn't about us. And it's not about what today you need to go do. None of you need to leave this place today going, oh, I'm a terrible Christian. Okay, I better work harder. Everybody get your gospel track. We're going to do this. All right? Turn on some... Super inspiring music, although that works sometimes. And go out and we're just we're going to go do this. I'm going to get somebody saved today even if I have to put them in a headlock. All right? No. You can leave here today and go, Jesus, I give you my life. And Lord, I'm terrified. But I'm, I'm, I'm saying it again, Lord. My life is yours. And I have no idea how to do this. I have no idea what to do, Lord. I have no idea how to do anything. But you do. And you're so good. And you're so gracious and you're so merciful. And Lord, you love me so much. And I don't deserve it, Lord. But you do. And so here's my life. And Lord, I'm trusting that you're going to do something good with it because I know I'd screw it up. So Lord, take my life and use it for your glory. I am surrendered to you. And you might need to go through that every morning and every lunch hour and every evening. And that's okay. Keep throwing your living sacrifice upon the altar because you remember what happens with a living sacrifice. It crawls off right? Crawls off that altar every day. And so, yeah, you got to throw yourself back on it. And that's okay, Christian. Keep throwing yourself back up there and saying, Lord, I'm yours. And then be absolutely amazed at the exceedingly abundantly things that he will do in your life that you're going, I never even thought that you could do that, Lord. I never even knew that you would do something like that. Lord, you're so good. Amen? It's rooted in his saving work. The mission of God's people must be carried on in the power of the Spirit. It's not by strength, it's not by might, but by the Spirit of the Lord. And all of this is acted upon by a people who worship Him, who have surrendered to His authority, and a people who ultimately know that there is no way that they could keep what they know and what they've experienced to themselves. And I would close with the words of the Apostle Paul is written to the church in Ephesus in chapter 4, verses 12 and 13. Paul says, it's for the equipping of the saints for the work of ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. You see, he's saying, as, as, as we do this work, as, as people are coming to saving knowledge of, of Jesus Christ, we, we continue to pour in, we make disciples because what happens is we equip the saints. We equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, until we all come to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. He says, until that time that He calls us home or He comes for us, we're obedient. We keep doing it. And so I'll close the way we began. Is Jesus 
the king of your life and of your heart? If so, then obey him. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we pause again and we do give you thanks for our time together here this morning. Lord, we love you. We praise you. We thank you, Lord, for your demonstration of grace and mercy towards us, Lord, beyond the, the, the extent of which, Lord, is, is far beyond us, far beyond what we know. And Lord, that you would welcome us, that you'd invite us, Lord, to be a part of, of the work that you're doing in this world, Lord. What a blessing. So Lord, help us by your Spirit to be a people that are surrendered and who are willing to allow you to do this work in our lives. There's no condemnation, no guilt. Just love for you, Lord, that manifests in, in wonderful things in our life that are all from you. So Father, do that work in our hearts here this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.